Jane is an all-in-one practice management software that can help you manage your practice with a suite of features that make it easy to meet with individuals, couples, families, and more. Here on Am I a Bad Therapist, we know that two of the most important things to us as therapists are confidentiality and our time. Thankfully, Jane understands that reliability and security are very important parts of running a private practice. Jane's cloud-based software is accessible wherever you have Wi-Fi, and their team is always ready to lend a helping hand. Jane is HIPAA and PEPITA compliant, and your data is stored safely in the country you practice in. So no matter where or how you practice, Jane's always with you in the most secure and helpful way possible. Not only does Jane help us protect our clients, but they help us protect our time too with features like calendar syncing, note templates, online booking, and they have automated reminders and workflows. Which you know we love on Am I a Bad Therapist? And you can learn more at jane.app slash mental health. You can also mention the code bad therapist for a one month grace period on your new Jane account. Have you ever asked yourself, am I a bad therapist? Well, you're in the right place. I'm Allie Joy, licensed professional counselor and board certified art therapist. And I'm Katherine Escare, a clinical psychologist, and this is Am I a Bad Therapist? Join us each week for stories from behind the closed therapy door. You'll hear experiences that made us ask, am I a bad therapist? Including bloopers, jaw droppers, and other difficult moments that normalize the unique struggles of modern day therapists. This is a space with no experts, no gurus, and no hierarchies, just humans sitting in similar chairs. And while we're not the gatekeepers for good and bad therapy, because we're bad therapists too, we are here to shine a light on the difficult decisions therapists face on a daily basis and to normalize that mysterious gray area of clinical practice that no one wants to talk about. Allie, COVID was a weird time. How did you cope? Well, it was a weird time. I definitely coped by playing a ridiculous amount of Animal Crossing and also working a ridiculous amount as well. How about you? How did you cope? (laughs) Our COVID experiences sound really similar. I had two toddlers. So actually, no, I had a six-month-old and a toddler. So I had two babies. And I did go out and buy a Switch to play Animal Crossing, and I did play a lot of that, but I eventually gave it up, and I worked a lot as well. I mean, the Teletherapist Network was invented out of COVID. Um, It doesn't sound like we had the best coping strategies. (laughs) And that, I feel like, was a very common experience for so many people, you know, therapists or not, where we we learned a lot about ourselves, I think, during COVID and maybe saw how we cope with different situations and how that could even impact our work as therapists, like we're going to hear today from Taylor, who really kind of had this realization of unhealthy coping skills and strategies during COVID. Oh, absolutely. And Taylor's going to share with us how she recognized when addiction was taking over her life outside of the clinical room, how it may have been impacting her inside the clinical room, and what she did about it and managed her career throughout the process. So before we get into it, um, this is just a reminder that we do not advocate or support bad therapy. And especially if you're an impaired practitioner or you know an impaired practitioner, consult your state or jurisdiction on their ethical and legal rules and regulations 
sessions, lots of times there are programs for impaired practitioners to engage with and supported by their organizations. So that being said, this is not a substitute for ethical guidance, clinical consultation, or therapy itself. All right. Well, this is episode number 61 of Am I a Bad Therapist? Let's get into it. Hey, Taylor, welcome to Am I a Bad Therapist? Thank you so much. So before we get into your situation, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah, I am a licensed therapist. I currently work in a telehealth position full time. So I work completely remote from home and I'm located in California. So I do get to see clients from all over, which is really nice. But the um, situations I'll be talking about today came from my previous work settings when I worked full time in a community mental health agency, you know, typical eight to five, Monday through Friday, plus private practice on top of that evenings and Saturdays. Um, So I left both of those positions by September of last year, and I've been doing fully remote ever since then. How has the transition been? Oh, so amazing. Um, I realize now uh, with, you know, my recovery and my own mental health, working fully remote is really the only way I'm able to maintain multiple forms of recovery to the fullest extent. You know, I get to when I have a cancellation or a break, go on a walk or um, go to a 12-step meeting. So it's really important for me to kind of have access to all of these things that I need to incorporate into my day in order to be the best version of myself for my clients. Oh my gosh, we love that so much. We I feel like there's there can be so many challenges to our schedules as therapists, but there are those really great pieces of flexibility. Mm-hmm. And to hear this transition that's been so wonderful you for you, we love to hear that. That's amazing. But this is also, I feel like, a great transition into tell us what made you question if you were a bad therapist. Yeah. So kind of setting the stage, um, I graduated with my master's degree in 2019, and I started work at the private practice October 2019, and then full-time at the local county agency uh, December 2019. Now, of course, shortly after March 2020, we have the pandemic, so I'm, you know, 24, 25 at this time, first big girl job or big girl jobs, plural, um, and then the pandemic on top of that. So my thinking at the time, and this is just true to nature and my personality, my story just involves always biting off more than I can chew. And several therapists that I know, they're just high achievers. I think that's not um, uncommon, but it was definitely just you know, typical tailor move, just, you know, couldn't be satisfied with the one job I had to get to, to finish all my hours as quickly as possible. So uh, with the pandemic, it was actually, there were a lot of kind of protective factors to that. I got to, um, you know, kind of slow down a bit. I was asked to stay behind as an essential worker, but I still had, you know, this huge workload of hours, you know, uh, 40 hours during the day, and then 
um, maybe up to like 10 sessions in the evenings and Saturdays. So it was just way too much. Um, They tell you in grad school, you know, here and there. And also employers and good supervisors will tell you, you know, you need to make time for self-care. You need to prioritize yourself, blah, blah, blah. But um, yeah, I just, you know, had one track mind. I want my license as quickly as possible. And this is how I'm going to do it. Um, so with the pandemic, um, and I'll just kind of get into my recovery a little bit. I had always been, um, a drinker and then like a lot of people, certain negative coping mechanisms were exacerbated during that time. And then, you know, while the pandemic kind of, um, forced me to slow down a bit in some ways, you know, there were other things that kind of went from zero to a hundred and, you know, I was doing a lot of things in secret, um, you know, with people out of the office, I felt like I could get away with maybe more, you know, being sleep deprived. Um, I was never, you know, intoxicated or anything out of work setting. I always made sure to prioritize my work and just keep up this image that I have it all together. Right. But, um, you know, at home, I was just a mess. I was, you know, numbing out, um, smoking, drinking, had a diet of a lot of sugar, and it was rapidly progressing. Um, You know, my hair was falling out, like it was just all bad. And uh, basically, skipping forward, it all came to a head when, um, you know, I could have lost everything and I was taken um, taken home in a cop car after a wedding and kind of had, you know, that I had never had any legal issues, but, um, you know, obviously that really scared me and I had worked really hard to get up until that point. But it was, um, you know, it was just evidence that okay, I have an addiction. It's a disease. It's not something I can control. And this is the gamble I take every time I pick up. So um, that was bad enough for me to decide to stop. And, you know, then I was left with all these questions, you know, where do I go from here? Basically, how do I address this with, you know, all these clients I have on my caseload, you know, all these hours I'm working, what do I do? Wow. Taylor, thank you so much for sharing not only, you know, your journey and your decision to work towards recovery, but everything that led up to that decision and how you, everything that impacted how you came to that decision. Um, I, I, I would love to hear more about, it, it sounds like the addiction really took hold on your life outside of work, mm-hmm. but we know with addiction, it impacts all of our areas, right? All of our areas of life. And so how, you know, sharing this, how did this make, how did your addiction made you question whether you were a bad therapist? How did your addiction make you or relate back to your work as a therapist? Because this is the work we do sometimes. Right. So um, obviously, you know, I'm questioning, um, you know, how long can I keep this up? Or, you know, this is probably not the best idea. I know I have a problem, but I don't know how to stop. And I don't know if I want to stop right now. Plus, you know, I was relatively very early on in my disease when I stopped. And now, um, you know, working with people both personally and professionally, 
who have addictions, um, I had so many yets and I was questioning, you know, is this, is this actually a problem? It kind of seems like other people are doing this or kind of coping in this way. And, you know, it was hard to kind of identify one client situation uh, for your podcast, because I'm sure every client I had was affected to some degree. Again, you know, made sure I was presentable to some extent for uh, the work setting and to do my sessions. But I mean, just kind of making some mistakes here and there, you know, I, um, I would get off at five and then I drive across town, I would schedule as early as 530. So, you know, I'm kind of rushing and, you know, clients can really feel their, where their therapists are at. I mean, you can hide or you think you can, but, um, you know, I was irritable. I was on edge. I was fatigued. And also in my work settings, you know, I would just turn my camera off, you know, not really be present and not participating Mm -hmm. as much. So it was very obvious, um, you know, looking back that uh, what I was doing outside of work was affecting me. And so that really made me question, you know, um, do I have a problem? One, but also, um, you know, am I really doing my clients a service or disservice by, um, you know, saying one thing, you know, self-care, 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 and not doing that myself. So a lot of um, imposter syndrome and just guilt, I think, underneath all of that. That makes so much sense. I feel like that can be such a challenging part of our work where I feel like so many clients have said it or you hear that they think we have our lives like so put together because we (laughs) share these all of these things. And it's like as much as we would love to practice what we preach and hopefully we do, it isn't always that straightforward or that easy or that simple. And it can almost give you that sense of like that imposter Mm -hmm. syndrome or I don't know if it's like feeling hypocritical or things like that, but it can be such a challenge. Um, to, you know, to kind of sit there and talk with someone. And then I'm curious, did you feel like it came in sessions at all where you were kind of turning to yourself, almost being like, am I feeling any of those emotions? Like I'm saying these things, were you reflecting back on yourself or was it not really coming into your mind during sessions? If you don't mind sharing. Yeah. Well, I think at the time, you know, I kind of had the basic training from school Mm -hmm. and was kind of going off of that. And, you know, that whole time period, looking back now, it just made me realize especially just how young I was and, you know, a lot of life experience that I did not yet have, you know, I was doing couples therapy and I had never been in a healthy relationship in my addiction. So I just didn't know what I didn't know. And, um, it was, you know, there are so many different concepts and, um, you know, just, I've gotten more certification since then and more training. And that just comes, you know, with the uh, the nature of the field and position. But um, yeah, I just didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know um, how bad, you know, it could have gotten. I mean, I got very lucky. You know, I was fortunate enough to just get a safe ride home um, and, you know, didn't have any legal consequences, but I could have very easily lost everything. And, you know, a lot of therapists are not, um, I could very easily, you know, have ended up in the therapist and um, mm-hmm. had everything taken away 
had I not, um, you know, done something about it. Let's pause here for a quick ad break. By the way, the number one support for those of us asking ourselves, am I a bad therapist? Are clinical consultation groups. If you don't have one yet, join us on the Teletherapist Network for unlimited peer consultation groups, including a lot of different specialty groups like clinicians of color, LGBTQ+, couples counseling, EMDR. And of course, Creativity in the Clinical Room hosted by me, Allie. Plus masterclasses, media leads, and everything else you need for an ethical, modern clinical practice. Join us at teletherapistnetwork.com. Hey, listeners. It's Catherine here, and I'm coming to you today because Allie's not the best at bragging on herself, and I want to remind you all that she has an incredible resource available for free at our website, cccs.care. Allie's Creative Intervention Library is full of easy interventions that even non-art therapist clinicians like me can use with clients of all ages. Every intervention has a list of materials, an entire process video where you watch Allie doing it, and a written description and steps so you can follow along at home. Plus, she even has a list of diagnoses that might find this creative intervention helpful. So if you want to access a totally free library of interventions for when you feel stuck with clients, check out Allie's website, cccs.care and sign up for free today. Moving forward, let's get back to the show. Can you tell us more about what went through your mind the morning, specifically with respect to your career and your, mm-hmm. your, your education all the time and money and effort you put into your career path? The morning after you wake up from that wedding, being taken home in a cop car, where did your head go in terms of who you are as a therapist and what your future looks like in, in the field? Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm running on very little sleep. I was so desperate at that point. Like it really was kind of, it felt supernatural or spiritual in nature. Like I was completely turned off from alcohol and it got bad enough for me to actually, um, you know, have the desire to make drastic changes in my life. And so, uh, what was going on through my head, you know, okay, I'm faced with, um, a few decisions here. It was no longer, you know, do I do something about this or not? It was, okay, I have to do something or else I lose everything I've worked so hard for. So um, I started calling treatment centers that next day. I was talking to my family and just kind of going through, okay, what would that actually look like? Taking leave to um, go to a treatment facility for residential care. Um, and just kind of taking everything into account, I decided not to go and that I would just try a local 12-step program instead. And so um, there was a lot of Zoom meetings up until that point. And uh, I found the first in-person newcomers meeting that first Friday after that previous weekend. And, uh, you know, before we actually had to attend a couple meetings for our addiction counseling class. So I could see it had been suggested to me long before, you know, you should probably go um, by a previous therapist who told me in college. So very early on, I started to display signs. But 
anyway, um, with COVID just kind of shutting everything down and very limited in-person meetings, this first one, there was no hiding at this point before when it was super crowded, could just kind of, you know, hide in the back and listen and leave and not really contribute, but there was no, you know, hiding at this one. There were so few of us, maybe like eight people. And um, I had, uh, or I walked up to the secretary at the end of the meeting and said, I want to be a member. And then she offered to be my sponsor that night. And I've been going ever since. And I've been working the 12 steps. I'm a sponsor myself. And um, it's really allowed me to be a better therapist as well as human being. That's amazing, amazing, Taylor. That's so special. Thank you. Now, I'm curious, did you um, end up having to pull back? Because you said you were working a ton. You had so many clients and so many hours. How did you find that balance for yourself and for your clients of like, did you have to end up terminating with some? How did you balance, again, this personal recovery journey with your working hours? Yeah. So um, basically, I replaced alcohol and other substances with my recovery So, I mean, when you give up a major addiction, it gives you a lot of free time. And, you know, there was still a lot, um, you know, a lot of things were shut down. And so I did not really change much about my work hours at the time. Um, But I just loaded up on meetings and, you know, reading the 12 step literature to help me cope with that. And so it was a lot. And then, you know, I'm adding other things into my recovery. I had to myself get a dietitian and work on weight restoration because I really just allowed my physical health to deteriorate as well as mental health. Um, And I was encouraged by my sponsor, who was also a therapist, um, just focus on alcohol right now. So the first year that was all I focused on, you know, they say don't make any big changes. In the first year, um, I wanted to just quit both of my jobs at some point. And so little by little, things were were just kind of happening organically for me. And I would, um, you know, just do the next indicated thing. Um, so things started to improve really rapidly. Um, you know, I ended up getting licensed. And um, shortly after, um, you know, I'm kind of... Uh, it took a little while, I think, to realize what balance truly looks like. And so I left my part-time job at the private practice April of 2022. And then I left um, the full-time position in um, uh, or September of last year. So, mm-hmm. you know, all the while, um, you know, worked on substance recovery weight restoration. Um, I was diagnosed later in that time period with obsessive compulsive disorder. So at one point I was in individual therapy, group therapy, working with the dietitian, you know, 12 step meetings on top of that. And so, you know, your life gets really full at that point, which is a good problem to have. Um, And then I was kind of realizing, okay, I think my current work setting, it's been great to start out, but I'm looking for something that supports 
my recovery and that is now working from home that allows me to do all of that. That's an amazing story of how what could have been the worst night of your life or a really bad night of your life has now shifted your trajectory of life in a very, very big way. And I'm wondering how how does your recovery uh, impact your clinical work as the therapist? Has it it influenced your work? Um, And if so, how so? Yeah, obviously, um, you know, with clients, it's a case-by-case basis, but I try to incorporate uh, spirituality, you know, wherever I can, if they, um, you know, have any sort of spiritual practices, because, you know, I've learned and implemented lots of different tools, um, but I think getting to some of those underlying concepts, kind of the deeper, you know, fears and hopes. And so I'll use sometimes 12 step interventions, like a fear inventory where, um, you know, I think certain exercises like exposure work is great on the surface. And I also recently got certified in EMDR, which I absolutely love. And I think is really powerful. Um, but for a lot of folks, I mean, I am getting, um, people who have some sort of spiritual background, like they do just kind of Uh, we kind of gravitate towards each other for whatever reason. So, um, you know, I kind of use an eclectic approach, but I definitely use what's worked for me uh, with some of my clients if I find that it could be helpful and it aligns with their, you know, beliefs and values. So I like to just pull from my toolbox and use what I know is helpful. Um, and it's amazing just to see progress and, um, you know, people overcoming their addictions as well. Yeah, that sounds so great. And did you find in like that first year, um, I don't know if you had any clients on your caseload who were either in recovery or struggling with addiction or things like that. Did that come up at all for you of like any countertransference, mm. thinking about am I able to work with this population right now? Is it a strength? Is it something coming up? Did that um, come up for you? Sure. Yeah. Um, I probably saw more, I worked with teens at my um, community mental health agency. So saw a lot more eating disorders than anything. There was some addiction coming up, but again, it's, it's so hard to tell. It's so early for a lot of kids. It's, you know, it's a progressive disease, but eating disorders, you can see those more clearly, um, a lot early on, a lot earlier on, in my opinion. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Some counter transference I had, uh, pretty much throughout my entire career. I don't know that I've had a bad supervisor. Everyone has been super supportive and is always reminding us of, um, counter transference and processing that in group supervision. So, um, you know, I started, uh, you know, gaining more confidence with telling my story with colleagues. Um, I think everyone at each setting knows I'm in recovery and it just feels very freeing to kind of talk about that. Um, and every once in a while, if it's appropriate, using self-disclosure effectively, mm-hmm. um, you know, really helps the therapeutic rapport and, um, you know, there's a lot of shame with each of these 
conditions. And so for teens or now working with adults, for them to hear, you know, they're not the only ones going through this. And surprise, therapists need therapy too, or they don't have it all together is very comforting for them. Taylor, we asked this question of all of our guests, but I'm going to kind of change it a little bit, if that's okay, Allie. Sure. And mm-hmm. I would love to hear what advice you'd have for therapists who might be in the contemplative stage. You were saying that there was a period of time where you were in the throes of addiction, but it was still kind of, is this a problem? Do I need to change what's mm-hmm. going on? If, if there's, and I know there's therapists out there listening to this who might also be questioning some of their behaviors or potential addictions, what advice would you have for them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's no secret that a lot of us get into the field because either we personally or, um, you know, we know someone who has experience with some mental health concern. So, um especially to young, you know, new therapists. Um, I think staying close to, um, you know, whatever your recovery looks like, if you have established mental health concerns and mental health treatment, you know, continuing to attend therapy Um, with addiction, again, just being very careful and mindful of frequency and intensity of use because it is really hard to tell um, if you are heading into the direction of addiction. And me, you know, I have a a family history that I didn't know about until much later. So I think that's kind of the thing too, is if you haven't done the work before, you know, you're going to at some point getting the clients that you get or being in um, consultation or supervision with other folks like you just um, you learn so much about yourself in the process so uh, definitely a lot of patience and self-compassion in general but on a more specific level um, you know it's it's not a joke the importance of self-care shouldn't be taken lightly, you know, whatever that looks like, taking medication consistently. Um, And also there is no rush and it is not worth it to uh, rush the process, trying to get all your hours as quickly as possible. Um, You know, I think you will, um, you'll definitely you know, you'll get the experience, you'll get your hours, it'll all work out, but to rush the process definitely does you a a disservice. Um, And it does your clients a disservice when you are um, not fully present, you know, not, um, not the best version of yourself possible. And um, I love the saying, you know, make time for your wellness, so you don't make time for your illness. Mm -hmm. Because that's what I was Uh, you know, that's what was brought to my attention, you know, this got so bad, I might have to, you know, take leave and give up on my clients. And I was very fortunate that I didn't have to do that, but very easily could have been in that boat. So um, yeah, definitely practice patience with the process. And, you know, California is 3000 hours. So it is a lot, but there is so much value in just the time and life experience that you get aside from the clinical training in that window. 
Oh, well said. Well, Taylor, we can't thank you enough for being so vulnerable and open and honest with your story. It's so valuable to hear. And I know so many therapists will be touched, you know, and just so intrigued and interested by your story. Um, and we're just so grateful that you chose to share it. Yes. Thank you, thank so you Taylor. Thank you both. Thank I really you. appreciate it. And that's it. The OG bad therapists, Allie and Catherine are signing off for the week. Make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We pick a few lucky five-star reviewers to shout out and invite for a 15-minute consultation with the both of us to talk about anything on your mind. From clinical work to podcasting, we're game. Just make sure to leave us your name and location in the review. Are you a bad therapist and want to be on the show? Go to abadtherapist.com and tell us your story. Our podcast is produced and edited by my amazing husband, Austin Joy. He also created the music for our intro and outro. You can find this song, along with many others, on any music platform under the artist Air for Effect. And if you're a bad therapist starting your own podcast or wanting to level up the one you already have, contact Austin for his full suite of podcast and sound production services. You can find him on Instagram at Air for Effect. And don't forget, we're all bad therapists. <laughs>